All right, now, as we're collecting the rest of these, and I love this place, uh, go ahead and switch me over, okay? All right, uh, clock starts, sermon starting, here we go, all right? So last week, we looked at what, what I believe to be a critically foundational truth, one that the Lord has been building to in this body just as he is building to it with the disciples as we are in Luke and coming to the very end of his time with them. And he's telling a series of parables in order to put them and get them in a certain place so that when he goes, they are doing what he wants them to do in the way that he wants them to do it with the heart that he wants them to do it with, right? So that's exactly where we are. And in this building, this line upon line and precept upon precept of, of parables that is building to a point we suddenly came to one that, frankly, was just super hard to understand. In fact, it was so hard to understand that despite me preaching about it all last week, I'll bet you there's about 50% of the people that still don't know what the point of that parable is. Now, that's, partly that's because I had you working on so much in such a short period of time, right? We did that exercise where we looked at various things. And, and so I get it, but we're going to just recap it really quick here, and hopefully you'll get it now. And if you don't, be sure and call me, okay? All right, because I can help explain this. But I'm going to read this very difficult to understand parable to you. It's meant to be difficult to understand. And, it, and it's difficult to understand because of us. But watch this. Here we go. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day a report came that the manager was wa wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about? You get your report in order because you're going to be fired. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig dishes. I'm too proud to beg. I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So he invited each person who owed money to his employer to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? And the man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager told him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was applied. Here the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels. It gets weird here. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. Now here's the key to it right here. It is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Here's the lesson Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your earthly possessions are gone, they'll welcome you to an eternal home. And we looked at how if you use your resources to make a difference in somebody's life and it brings them to the Lord, they are your reward. They are in heaven waiting for you, in, in essence, saying congratulations and thank you. See what I mean? So now... That's the, there's a way of understanding this that's just sort of obvious right there, what I just said, but there's a deeper lesson in it, which is the one that we plumbed last week. And that deeper lesson is, how is he commending a dishonest steward? Listen, now let's be really clear. Here's what he's doing. Jesus is saying that the dishonest steward that doesn't know Christ He's commending him over you, <laughs> us. He's commending them. He's saying, this person's got his act together relative to his world and his circumstances than you do. That's what he's saying. It says it right there. See it? The children of this world are more shrewd in the dealing with the world around them than are the children of the light. Take around them for just one second out and say, the children of the, of, are more shrewd in dealing with the world than the children of the light. Now, here's what's being said. See, the person that doesn't have Christ in their life, the world has this set of rules and principles and so on and how it works. And this guy gained the system in a way that he made it work out as well as possible for him. He maximized his world, Right? Now, what's being said about Christians is, is we don't maximize our world. Because here's the truth. Our world is not the same as that world. That world doesn't have transcendence in it. It does. It just doesn't know it, right? So it's operating according to rules that don't think that there's anything else. So why not cheat and get as much as you can? We are living, however, in that world, but we are of another kingdom, which is God is trying to invade into that kingdom. 
He's trying to show that there is, in fact, something infinitely more. And let me just make it really clear. You know, when it says in Malachi, just, you know, test me in this. Give me. Do, the, do, the, do it the way I asked and see if I won't open up the floodgates of heaven. Right? So here's what's being said. God is saying, Christians don't know that there is this floodgates of heaven. There is this dam that is filled to the overflowing. And God is just wanting with all of his being to flow his resources through you. That's what he's wanting to do to make a huge difference in the world. This is what he's trying to do. But Christians don't know it. We don't believe it. We don't trust it. We think it might be true and it's a nice little story. But if you're asking me to give away my money, then you've gone from preaching to meddling and stop it. See, don't tell me to actually do it. I know the word says it, but come give me a break. See? What he's saying is, is he's saying, I have this enormous reservoir of blessing that I desire to flow, and you're the impediment. <laughs> you do not understand what's true, and so you act as does somebody in the world, and then, but you can't act holy as a cheat. So now you're even worse off than the cheat, <laughs> right? You didn't avail yourself of what the kingdom had, and you're not cheating the world to game it. So you're like the worst one. <laughs> do you get it? Now what we did is, is when we looked at that, we said, we said, how do we understand that parable? I've just told you, but when we were trying to understand it, I said, how do you get to where you understand it? We did that long exercise where I showed you all the parables before. I gave you printouts of them. And then people went through those printouts and tried to understand if there's a theme in these where it is line upon line, principle upon precept, principle upon principle, building to a point, precept upon precept. And the issue that we found was we don't get it. Now watch. In the beginning parables leading up to this one, it's other people don't get it. So it's still we but it's not me. It's those religious leaders don't get it. It's those other people don't get it. But I'm following you. I get it. And this is what Jesus has been doing. By the way, God does this several different times in Scripture, and it's always amazing when he does it. He starts out here to where we all agree, oh, yeah, that's true. And then he just sort of gradually just sort of rings it in <laughs> to where he rings it in and rings it in. And we're going, oh, I get that one too. Oh, yeah, that one's true. Oh, yeah, that one's true. Oh, yeah, that one's true. And then all of a sudden, he brings it right home. And then, and then we go, oh, crap, that one's true too. <laughs> Only this one's me. See? This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to bring us to that place where we understand I don't get it. And this is what he's saying right to his disciples right before he's about to leave. He has to say this to them because he's about to leave. And what he's telling him is, you don't get it. You've seen an awful lot. You've done an awful lot. And you still don't get it. Now, let me make one thing clear. We'll never get it fully, right? He's infinite. So we're finite. He's infinite. It'll always be more that we don't get. But he's saying in this instance, this is something that you could and should be getting. Not only that, you need to get this. The world needs you to get this. But you need to get it. And so just to show you that I'm actually this may be the correct interpretation, let's look at the next words that Jesus uses because these do explain the parable and what he's trying to get at, the principle. And you tell me if my explanation right here doesn't fit these words pretty well. If you are faithful in little things, what's he talking about? How much money do you make? Doesn't matter if it's a lot or a little, that's little. If you're not faithful in the little things I've given you, like an in income, <laughs> right? Then you won't be faithful in large ones. You, everybody wants more. But if you're not being faithful what I gave you, you're not going to be faithful with what I give you more. In fact, we're going to find out it actually would hurt you if I gave you more. Be to your harm. Well, that causes a problem, doesn't it? <laughs> so he says, look, if you're dishonest in little things, how are we dishonest? What was this guy doing? He was cheating his master. What are we doing with Christians when we hold on to things because we're protecting ourselves and we don't pour them out in the way that he resources to pour them out? Isn't that doing the exact same thing as this dishonest or did? Aren't we cheating God? He gave us something in order to do something, and then we don't do it. How's that not dishonest? How's that not exactly what the steward did? 
If you're dishonest in little things, the income, won't you, be, won't, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, you see how he's drilling it down to make it more and more clear? If you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? This floodgate that we're talking about. And if you're not faithful with other people's things, whose, whose things are the things that you have? They're God's. He's the one that gave them to you. And he gave them to you, but they're still his. Now, we don't think that way. If you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? I'm telling you right there, there's a whole other sermon right there. The things that we have right now are the things that he gave to us, and he's wanting to see whether or not we get it. And if we get it, he wants to fill us. No one can serve two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise it. You cannot serve both God and money. And then he goes right to the, the, the Pharisees and so on. But again, the point is, we're looking at this post the time that it happened and what he's trying to say to Christians today. And this is what he's trying to say, what we've been talking about. And just in case, you know, we, we looked at the principles in these parables leading up, and we saw that it kind of all of it boiled down to this. And I did it just like this, not getting it. You cannot become my disciple without giving up everything you own. How many disciples are there in the room? I like to think every single person sitting here that knows Jesus. Well, you are, right? If you know Jesus, you're a disciple, right? But disciple in the way that he's talking about right here, you can't be my disciple until you give up everything. So I might not fit that definition have I given up everything? Really? Truly? I don't know. I don't think so. In fact, I know me, and I know for real. No. So, huh. And then he goes to this. Just so that, well, no, now watch this. I'm going to go to Acts, but here's where I'm going to Acts. This is a really, another really cool thing God does throughout Scripture and just in general. When he wants people to do something that they've never seen before, he does it. Whoever the people are, whatever their natural human nature would have been to resist him and all that kind of stuff, he overcomes everything, and he paints the original picture the way he wants it to look. And then, for the rest of time, he's saying, is this what you want? Will you do that? That's what he's doing. So the original Christian community in Acts is so important for us to look at because this is what God wants the church to look like. Can I get the clock going just in case? Okay. I don't think it's going to be a problem. It's a long intro, but it's not as long a sermon. Okay. But now watch. All the believers were united in one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. And so they shared everything they had, just like God was teaching the disciples to do. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was on them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. This, again, this is, trust me on this, but this is still the intro. I actually stand before you as a man who has done that to a remarkable degree. I do not pat myself on the back for it, but it is one of the things I'm the most happy that I ever did in my entire life because I had a moment in my life where I had millions of dollars and I had a choice whether to give some and keep some or whether to actually put it all into a pot. And everybody told me it was stupid to do what I was doing and I knew that it was stupid to do what I was doing. But the point was, is I knew that before the Lord, I was saying that I'd given him all, and unless I actually gave him all, I was a liar and a hypocrite. And that that would always be a problem for me. I've got like two or three times in my entire life where I had really big tests, and I feel like I passed. By the way, almost all the big tests I feel like I've passed. The little ones I flunked just massively, continually. <laughs> okay? But I feel like there's been like three times when God really gave me, and I feel like every one of those times, I just went, I'm in. I'm just in. And I actually did give it to him. And, and the end result of it was, now don't be scared by this because I'm telling you, I do not regret it. To the contrary, I actually think it was the most important thing that ever happened to me so far. Maybe marrying Julie, okay? 
probably marrying Julie and then this, okay? <laughs> but, but the thing is, is I did that and I lost it all. Now, understand what I didn't do. Before I gave everything to him, he came to me and he said, I want you to give away half of it and give it away. When I gave him all of it, it was putting it into something that would have essentially been a company that if it had gone well, it would have blessed, and blessed me, right? But I was still putting it all in a very risky situation, and I knew it was very risky and so on. But before I'd given it all, he'd come to me and said, give me half and just give it away. And I didn't. I found a way around it. Surely you cannot mean that. Right? But he did. And he does with every single person. So I want to say something. I stand here as somebody who really has, I think, to a degree, lived up to those scriptures. I don't, you know, when I read them, I think I know a little bit of what that is. Not fully, because again, I didn't do it. But I feel like I got that. And yet I can tell you for real, if the Lord should bless me with a significant amount of money, and then he came to me and said, give it all to me, just give it away. I can tell you that unless it was a billboard flashing, unless he was standing next to me speaking audibly and holding my hand, I am not convinced that I would make that decision. If he gave any subtlety or nuance to it whatsoever, I would do as I'd done before, and I would figure another way to do this and not do it. The bottom line would be not do it. I don't think I'm alone. <laughs> and the reason why I don't think I'm alone is because nobody here has done that, and he doesn't need to do a billboard because we have a billboard called the Scripture, and he showed us and told us what to do, but we're not doing it. So can we all do what I asked for last week, which was, you know, that we deal with the fact that there's an issue, <laughs> that there's something going on in us that really is an issue, that we really are withholding in some fashion that is significant and critical to our harm. We are, in fact, the dam to the reservoir being poured out. Is that all right? Okay. So with that, let me just tell you where we're going today so that you can see it. How do you do what you don't want to do? How do you get to where you'll actually do it? And not just do it like, okay, okay, but like, wow, I want to do that. Right? How do we get there? Okay. Mark Headley. Mark Headley. Where are you, Mark? Stand up. Where are you? Right there. Can I just tell you something? Uh, I want to commend you. You guys came back, and there's something that you didn't even know about that the Lord's been doing in the staff about regional communities and, and really thinking of Lake Sam in a very, very different way than we're currently thinking of it. And I'm not going to be talking about stuff now because we're still working through things and, and trying to hire the right person to help us build it and all that kind of stuff. But can I tell you something? You guys came back, and God, I think, helped light a fire in this exact area that you didn't even know about. And I just am so happy that you are here. I think God's using you so much. So you're a perfect person to bring this. Okay? Thank you. So pray for the sermon. Lift up another church. Abba, I praise you this morning. Thank you for grace. Thank you for choosing us as your children. Thank you for Jesus. Amen. Thank you for undeserved life poured out to save us from the faith that we deserve. Father, may you be famous in this place. Amen. May your glories be revealed in this city through your church. Jesus, use the people of this church. Use the people of your church to make yourself known. May your people bear your fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness in new ways to bring life to this land. Thank you, Jesus. May we understand more deeply the awesome responsibility of what it means to be stewards of your kingdom. God, use us and give us the courage to say yes when you call us. Amen. Give us the courage to give out all in response to the everything that you poured out for us. May we choose your glory over our comforts. Abba, I pray for Kurt this morning. Speak through him and give us ears to hear your hearts. And Father, I lift up Mountain Springs Church and Pastor Daniel in Colorado Springs. Amen. I pray over their vision to bring your name to that city. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. See why I like him so much?
Okay, I'm going to give you a Rorschach test. You know what a Rorschach test is? That's that ink blot thing where you look at the ink blot and it's just an ink blot. But whatever you see in it is because you're projecting into it what's in you, right? So this is a Rorschach test only with scripture, all right? All the believers were united in one heart and mind and they felt what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now, can I just make one thing really clear, particularly for visiting? This isn't a tithe sermon, all right? All right, this is where we are in Scripture. There's something going on here that God is trying to do. So could you just, you, you got to understand, this is so much bigger than money, it's ridiculous, okay? But anyway, whatever. So those, there were no needy people. Okay, now, now let me just ask you, okay, when you read those verses, and you got to be honest, you, can't, you don't get to be Christian right now. You just have to be you. There shouldn't be a difference, but there is, okay? I just, I just, when you read that and you think about actually doing that, what stands out to you? One of two things I'm going to propose, and then we're actually going to see a show of hands, so be honest, okay? It's so much more fun when we're honest, okay? It actually makes a bigger difference, too. So the first one is, first of all, let me just say something. If you don't have anything, it's really easy to think that you would give it all away. If you've earned something, it's considerably harder, okay? If you've been given something, give it away, who cares? But if you earn something, it gets super hard. So if you don't have anything, please don't just say, well, no, I'd give it all away. But, you know, think about what you would really do if you'd actually earned it, if there's actually this, you know, work and sweat equity and so on that went into getting it, okay? So here's what I'm saying. When you read that verse and you think about yourself having to be in that community, there's one of two things I'm going to propose and I'm going to ask you which one you are leaning towards. Are you the person that goes... <laughs> what stands out to you in that verse is, is I don't think I want to sell everything and give it to everybody. I just don't want to do that. Is that what strikes you in this verse as being problematic? Or, see what I mean? Is that what you read out of it? Or is what you read, oh my gosh, isn't that cool that there was no people that had any need? Now, can we just take a little vote? How many, how many people were on the first one? Where kind of what sticks out to you is the, I don't think I want to give everything away. Okay, I'm raising my hand, okay? All right? Now, how many people are saying, no, what really comes out of that verse is, is wow, this is so cool that nobody has any need. Okay? That's actually, you guys all should go, you should be raptured now. The rest of us will sing it out here. We'll try and figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So, all right? So this is this little Rorschach test. And what I want to do is, is whether, you answered your, whether you answered that Rorschach one way or the other, the thing that I want us to see is, do you, know that you've, do you know that there is a problem? And here's the nature. See, how do we do what we don't want to do? The thing that we dealt with last week at the end, and what I asked you to do throughout the week was admit that we have a problem. Not only do we have a problem, but, it, but that there's actually no way that I can fix it myself. Not really, right? I can do things like giving a certain amount away. I can do things that get me a little closer to it. But, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, and, and is my heart truly where God wants it to be in whatever he would ask me to do, even if it meant giving, selling everything to give to a community so that there was no need? Which, by the way, ironically, means the people that were giving had no need either. But let's be clear about something. Needs are not the only thing we're concerned about. If you were living in Africa, you would be worried about needs. If you were living in certain other impoverished places, Bangladesh, for example, likelihood is you're worrying about needs. Okay? But we Americans pretty much have the need thing covered. Okay? We're into wants. And one of the reasons why I don't want to sell is because there's things that I still want. And I don't think that God's going to let me have them. And what a perverted, corrupted, satanic view of God that is. Can we make something clear? God wants so much more for you than is ever. You, you, you haven't even imagined the thing that God wants for you. But let's just stick with this just for one second. There isn't any way to actually get myself to that place. Because that's the witness of Scripture. I'm not going through this whole thing. That's a whole sermon. I've done it several times. Those who have been around have seen it before. But I want you to understand something. 
It starts over here in the garden, number one, the upper category. And then you see the arrows go across, and then that's the exile, and then they come back. And the point is, is all of human history is this big flow, starting in the garden and ending in heaven, okay? Ending in the new heaven and the new earth, okay? And it's all this big flow, and it starts out in the garden where God gave us everything, right? Do understand something. Who are the richest people that ever lived? It's Adam and Eve. We think it's Solomon. It actually isn't. It's Adam and Eve. You know why? Because anything they needed, anything that they wanted, everything was right there, and there was no corruption trying to steal it, pervert it, take it away. They had everything, everything, right? But then what they did is they also were given free will, so they had that too, and bummer, because what they used it for was to go their own way, and they just got separated from God. And the whole rest of this flow is us saying, I can get back to you. I can do it. And the whole of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is teaching us what? No, you can't. Because we tried it this way, and then we tried it this way, and then we tried it this way, and then we tried it this way, and this way, and this way, and this way, and it even goes down to the bottom. We tried it these ways, and it never, we never got back to him. Not really. Right? And so what's being said here throughout this whole thing is, is you're not going to get back to him. And after 2,000 years, I'd say that God spent enough time proving that to us that we can call it a truth. Wouldn't you? 2,000 years equals, that's probably the way it actually is. If not one person ever truly got back to God, right? What it was trying to teach us, it wasn't showing us what we had to do. It was trying to teach us that we needed help. First thing we needed, a savior. <laughs> we needed somebody to save our butts from ourselves, right? But even that wasn't enough. We also needed a new nature because the old nature was going to continue to choose to go its own way. And we needed a nature that literally is God's so that we would want to do the things that God wants us to do. So this is what God did. He saved us. And made us new. Right? He saved us. And so what happens is, is we get to a place where we say, we've got to understand as Christians a Christianese thing. And I'm sorry, so bummed that this has become a Christianese. Watch this. Oh, foolish Galatians, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? See, didn't you learn anything from the Old Testament? Have you learned anything from your own life and your inability to get things exactly right? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? So here's the Christianese that as good New Testament people, we say all the time, you can't do it, only God can. Now here's how that plays. That means I don't have to do anything. <laughs> Doesn't it? Right? If only God could do it and I can't do it, then I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let him do it. And I'm going to live, therefore, in a state which Paul described for us. And I'm thinking Paul was a pretty good Christian. Right? I'm, I'm willing to go and say, maybe Paul was a much better Christian than anybody I've ever met in my life. And what Paul said about this whole struggle between old and new nature was, I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. I want to do what's right, but I can't. So Paul is saying that even as a Christian, there's this thing inside of him that I just confess to where God has shown me a beautiful, 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 I bear witness to the beauty of the first community of Christians. In fact, I stand as one of those who looked at that first community and what was said about them was they admired greatly what they were doing because for heaven's sakes, who would do that? But they feared to join them because they didn't want to do it. <laughs> so, you know, what a horrible thing that you should be in a community where everybody's needs are taken care of. Right? But now I still have, and I still have wants. I still have this battle. I still have this thing that's going on inside of me. So what we're talking about today is how do you get past that? How do you get to where you do what you don't want to do, to where you are, where you become, where you love doing what you formerly didn't want to do? And so maybe let's go to a second area. What if the problem is that we don't actually understand what the problem is? What if we're looking over here for a solution? And the Christianese is, is, well, you don't have to do anything. But in fact, you do have to do something. And in fact, the solution exists in another place. What if that's what the issue? In fact, let me place that one. 
What if there's actually an entirely different way to see everything? Let me, let me, just, let me just give you the principle of the, the New Testament way of communicating the floodgates of heaven. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full. Pressed down, shaken together to make room for more. Running over, poured into your lap. The amount you give will determine what you get back. Now let me make something clear here. Tithe and offering, this is just really quick. Always remember, tithe is not an option. Tithe is, this is not a tithing sermon. But I just want to make something clear what he's talking about. Tithe is not under your control. Tithe is what he is asking you to do just to demonstrate that you're obedient. Just to say that I want to do something corporately with it. There's all kinds of other things about it. We've talked about it before. We're not talking about it now. What he's talking about here is, is are you the kind of person that takes the resources that God has given you and tries to make a difference with them in the world? That's what he's saying. He's not saying give to the church and you're going to be rich. What he's trying to say is, is are you the kind of person that gives? Are you the kind of person that when you see somebody in need, you pour out to them? You, you make a difference in their life. You do whatever you can, not just money, you, right? You. If you're that kind of person, here's what he's saying. You can't outgive God. I'm going to pour it back into you massively. This is the principle. And if you don't believe that the principle's true, how many thousands of examples could I give you? But let me give you one that I just particularly love. George Mueller. George Mueller was poor. He died with 20 bucks in his pocket. Somehow, this poor guy had every year, year after year, was supporting 10,024 orphans, opened 117 schools with 120,000 students. And schools in that day and age were not publicly funded schools. He had to raise the resources to do that. And here's the really cool thing about George Mueller. Because of his relationship with the Lord, here's what he never did. Asked anybody for anything. He never let his needs be known to anybody. And the reason why is because he said, well, then it's going to be because I manipulated them. Or that they gave or, or whatever. I want you to do what you want to do here. And whatever you give me, I'm going to do it. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do it. And God brought, you just have to read his stories millions and millions and millions of dollars went through, in today's dollars, went through George Mueller to support 10,024 orphans, 117 schools, and 120,000 students. And I love this so much because Mueller stands at the crossroads for an entirely new way of thinking about human beings in the world. Before Mueller, truthfully, before that part of the Enlightenment and so on that was taking place, and it's longer, anyway, but but the point is, is before Mueller, if you were born poor, that was your caste. You know what caste system is? When you were born poor, that was your station in life is what they called it. And so you weren't supposed to be pulled out of your station in life. That was your plight. That was what you were born into. If you were born rich, well, then too bad for you, you were rich. And if you were born poor, then too bad for you, you were poor. But whatever you were born into, that was your station in life. And what was said about Mueller, and I love this, was, they would say, he dared to actually try and raise the poor above their natural station in life. Wouldn't you love somebody say that about you? Only, you know, that natural station, we would never use that language. Wouldn't you love people to say, wouldn't you love for the witness of your life to be that, this, that you poured yourself out in every way that you could to make as much of a difference as you possibly could? Well, that's what Mueller did. And Mueller proved the principle of give, and you open up floodgates. Be willing to give anything, and God will give you everything. <laughs> right? Now, so where do we get this corrupted idea about who God is? Where do we get this perverted idea about who God is? God will take care of what you need, but don't be asking him for what you want. This is not cool. Where do we get that? Lots of different places. It's a, it's a deceived spirit. But the bottom line is, there is a scripture that I want to show you. Watch this. You don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Now, this is true and important. 
right? If what you're asking God for is so that you can go spend it on yourself and do what you want, because after all, you do need whatever it is that you think you need, you know, in, in our perverted sense of wants and needs. But the bottom line is, is we get something out of this, but can I just point you to something right here in this? You don't have what you what? Need? He's not talking about needs here. He's talking about that God wants to give you what you want. God wants to give you the desires of your heart. He wants to put them in there, and then he wants to fulfill them. And, and, and can we again make something very, very clear? You do realize how many people in Scripture were rich. And it wasn't universally some sort of a condemnation. You know what it was? When they used their wealth poorly, it was bad. When they used their wealth well, it was good. Solomon, I just love it. Solomon spent seven years building the temple and 14 years building his own house. I think those numbers are a key. You know what I mean? Twice as long to build his own house. Now Solomon got corrupted. But you know who was fabulously rich before him? David. And here's what David did. David was going to move the ark, and he was going to go, and he said, you know, and the guy said, well, don't buy this land from me. For heaven's sakes, I'm willing to give it to you. And he says, I'd never give to the Lord something that didn't cost me, that cost me nothing. I'd never do that. Here's what David did with what he had. He was just a conduit for whatever the Lord wanted. He just let it, right? If the Lord wanted to do something, that's what David did. And David had enormous wealth, and he used it in a very good way. Built a nation. That's a pretty good thing, right? There is no problem. In fact, let me, I'm going to do something. Look, what you want, and it's because you want only for your pleasure. See? It's not that you have the... God is not saying that because you want a vacation or because you want a car or because you want a house, you're an evil, despicable, horrible human being. If you were just more godly, you wouldn't want any of that. You live in a shack by the side of the road, and every dollar that ever came your way, you would treat it like you were allergic to it, and it would immediately bounce off of you and go somewhere else. Right? Okay, this is a very dear good friend of mine, and they just bought a car. And that's a beautiful car. Do you like that car? I like that car. I think it's beautiful. Now, I want you to know something. Yeah, I love what you just said. I want you to know something. When this person showed me their car, they had to, as we all do as good Christians, tell me what a great deal they got. <laughs> and I didn't mind that he was telling me what a great deal they got. I really rejoiced in the story of the great deal he got. But when it becomes a pathology, that every time you have something nice, you have to explain to somebody how you really got a good deal on it. Can we make something clear? If you're able to buy a Mercedes, praise God, it's a safe car. It's wonderful. If you have one, it's great. And don't ever feel like you have to explain yourself to anybody else. And I don't mean that in a non-connected way. I mean that in that we have the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And if he doesn't care if you have a car, a Mercedes, it's okay. Have a Mercedes. Don't care about that. There, honest to goodness, isn't a problem with this. Let me just say, say that that isn't, when you hear the deal that they got on it, and I'm not going to tell you because I don't want to feed that part. But I'm telling you, if you knew what the actual price was that they paid for that car, you'd go, well, that'd be crazy not to buy that car for that much money. Okay? It, you know, it had to do with what's going on with Volkswagen and all that. So they got a killer deal. But let me make something clear to you as I'm trying. The car that you drive, can, oh, wait, no, watch, I got to back up a little bit. I think every single decision you ever make, you ought to bring God in. No, that's the wrong way to say it, isn't it? Every deal that, everything that you ever think about doing, God is involved in. You can either choose to listen or not. My daughter Chappelle is looking at a house right now, and she has evidenced a patience in the middle of a situation that's gotten a little complicated. She has evidenced a patience and a trust for the Lord that I have found to be admirable and lacking in me. I don't know where she got it from. Julie, thank you. But she has waited, and now the Lord does seem to have brought something. There were lots of really good eye candy. But now the Lord does seem to have brought something that is like, it just feels like, okay, that's probably it. It might not be, but, but I feel like her patience 
has brought about the deeper, better thing that God wanted for her. So I want to say, I think God should be involved in every single decision you ever make, and he wants to be involved in every decision you ever make. Here's what he doesn't care about. What car you buy. Now, yeah, okay, because you got to make the decision and so on, but he doesn't care. If, you know, you do realize that you can drive a 15-year-old Pinto and have a bigger problem with that car in your heart than the person that's driving a brand new whatever. Right? Let me make it, okay, again, I'm trying to make it clear. I, I, sometimes I say I'm trying to make it clear and it tends to be muddy. God doesn't care what car you own. He only cares whether or not it owns you. He doesn't care about what house you have. He only cares if it owns you. God is not trying to keep people poor. That isn't his goal. He's not saying you're only pious if you have nothing. If you're called to celibacy, then do celibacy. If you're not, be married. This, one of the worst sins in America today is, is how hard it is to get married as a young woman right now. Uh, it is killing me. And it's because of sexual revolution. It's because of all this free sex that's going on and people aren't connecting in the way that they should be connecting and so it's not happening. And it's, it's a cost of this of freedom that is putting us in a bondage. Okay? Same thing here. It's not about the object. It's not about, you know, if you have a lot of money, praise God. But are, is that money God's or is it yours? Can he do anything he wants with it, with you? If you, if you can really say, I'll do anything that you tell me to do with it, then he doesn't care how much you have. In fact, the verses that we looked at earlier say, that's what he wants to do with you. Now watch. That doesn't mean that he's trying to make everybody rich. This is where prosperity doctrine can get it wrong, right? So you see, everybody's supposed to be rich and then just doing whatever God says, but I'm always going to have enough for myself. That's just stupid. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It matters whether or not you're God's. It matters whether or not he owns you. Will you do anything he wants you to do, period? And if you are the kind of person that he can do that with, he's wanting to bring more through you because you're going to get it out there where he wants it to go. Here's what we do in Prosperity Doctrine. Here's what we say. We say, what's happening is, is God's going to let this avalanche, this flood come through me, and I can just siphon off a little bit so that I'm doing pretty good too. There is no siphoning. Siphoning is called stealing. There is no siphoning. If you get $10 million and God says, give away $10 million, what are you supposed to do? If you have $10 million and God says, give away $1 million, what are you supposed to do? And then you have $9 million left and just use it responsibly. Right? Handle it the way that God would lead you to. Handle it respectfully. Handle it carefully. Don't let it get its grip in you. Right? See, the problem is, we're the ones... The seed, the parable of the seeds and the sowers, what he's saying is the seed that fell among the thorns that represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, and so no fruit is produced. If God gives you $9 million net and it ruins you, has he done you a favor? <laughs> right? He loves you. He's not trying to hurt you. He just wants to know. He wants you to know. He wants you to know that you, in your own flesh, cannot. So what he's asking you to be is holy and always whatever he says. What, what do we do here at this church? What's the point of Lake Sam? To teach us how to live a spirit-led life. To actually live a spirit-led life. The Holy Spirit leads you. You do it. My prayer for the worship that would come in this church. Whatever the Holy Spirit leads, that's what we would do. Here's one for you. This is an article, Christianity Today. This is Prosperity Doctrine. I've already talked poorly about it, but let me now talk the other side of it. Now watch, this article is very critical of Prosperity Doctrine, of false prophets and prophets. Nobody's ever made that pun. Meet the Pentecostal preacher taking on the prosperity doctrine gospel. And if you've been to Africa, you know that the prosperity doctrine, if you've been to any 
third world country. The prosperity doctrine is huge. Now, here's the truth about the prosperity doctrine. Where did it come from? No, exactly what I'm saying today. Here's, what the, prosperity, here's the heart of the prosperity doctrine. God has an absolute reservoir overflowing that he wants to release to make a difference. That's the truth. That's what prosperity doctrine is saying. When you live in this impoverished place saying everybody has to live poor and tiny. See it? Prosperity doctrine is just simply saying, know who you are in Christ. You are the child of the king who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You are the child of the creator of everything that ever was. You are the one that he desires to move through to make a difference in his world. He doesn't just desire it. He set it up so that that's the way he will move. So if we don't, he doesn't. That's not entirely true, but it's true enough. So watch. Somebody comes in there, and they preach to prosperity doctor people. They preach about God pouring out resources. Now, here's what happens in our flesh. We pervert the pure message of the prosperity, of this idea. And what we say is, is yes, the way to get rich is to give money away. And somebody's preaching it to us, and what he's saying is, is the way to get rich is to not just give the money anywhere, give it to me. <laughs> right? Now, when you do that, a pox on your head. And a pox on your head for giving it that way. It's just stupid. Where, where did you miss God so badly that you were thinking that if you would just give to a preacher or to any other work, that that was it? That, that would make you rich. That that's the, that's the secret key. That's the formula. God is the one that, Satan's the one that loves a formula. God hates them. What God loves is hearts. And let me tell you something now. When I read this article, it actually made me mad. And here's why it made me mad. Because this guy's coming in and he's trying to pervert a message of God that God's trying to bring to people who are impoverished. Which is, God has an absolute avalanche. He has an absolute reservoir that he wants to open up floodgates and pour through you to make a difference in a continent which has served under a spirit that is impoverishing them in every single way, spiritually, physically, and everything else. And God wants to unleash rivers of living water to make enormous differences in that country. There's no reason why Africa, with all of its wealth and all of its resources and all of its people, should not be an incredibly prosperous and wonderful place to be. And I want to say, praise God for the people who have gone in there with a pure heart and have preached about who God really is and what he's trying to pour out to people and what he's trying to do. Thank God that that message is going around the world and that people are getting a hold of it. And then, as we always do, we pervert the truth of God and turn it into something horrid. But let me tell you something really clear. I believe if those people in their pureness of heart are saying to the Lord from their meager thing, do remember the widow's might, Jesus commended her. I believe that those people in their impoverished state, if what they really believe in their heart is, is there's a work that is going on and it's God's will and God wants me to pour into that work and from their impoverishment they're pouring into the work, what will happen is, is it will increase. God's economy is not to go down, it's to go up. There is not a slice, a pie that is fixed in its diameter and you, if you're going to get anything more, you must take from someone else. The way that it works is, I've always said this, why does God give money unequally? First of all, he didn't, okay? But why does he allow it to happen where it's unequal? By the way, read the Old Testament sometime and see how God balanced things every 50 years, right? That, that's one of the ways that you do this, that you keep it from going crazy as it's getting right now. The income inequality thing is horrible. It's so, so out of control. It's going to create a caste system, a new one like the Europeans have. And it's a bad thing. But the bottom line is, is, is when these people are pouring this out out of the goodness of their heart to make a difference and they believe that God is the one who's trying to resource through them, do you think God's going to sit there and say, boy, you really don't understand your doctrine and so I'm not going to bless you? Because after all, this is what God does say about that. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. The person who sows generously reaps generously. The person, each person should do as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. 
This is what's true. And I think somebody going in there and trying to say, this prosperity doctrine is not true is actually going to impoverish people. I really do. Now, if somebody, if, I, I want to say this. If there's a preacher who's preaching the prosperity doctrine the way I've just described it, in a pureness of heart, believing that this principle is true and that we're supposed to make a difference, and he's going to a place like Africa where there is so much need, and he's preaching to people, pour out your resources, and we are going to make a difference in these other people, do you think God's going to bless that person? Because I do. Now, if the guy is saying, but I'm going to build myself a big house and I'm going to buy a big jet, and that's what this is about, well, a pox on him. Each person gets judged according to their works, according to their heart. If the heart is wrong, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's wrong. If the heart is right, it doesn't matter. It's right. You see it? I want us to get free of something, and I want us to do something right now. I'm just going to, I'm wrapping up with this. God has snared me. I watched a documentary. Crips and Bloods Made in America. I've talked about it one time before already. The, uh, can I just say, required watching for every human being. And, and the, the bottom line analysis of it is this. Crips and Bloods, we all have our understanding. That's the, down in Watts in L.A. And Crips is red and Bloods is blue. And there, there's 15,000. Right? Bloods is red. What did I say? I said the other way? Well, blood is red. Yeah, okay. So, sorry. But can you see that stat right there? 15,000 people in a civil war that's happening in the middle of a city. And we have essentially put up in our hearts a big, high-walled fence. And we are letting the battle burn and rage and somehow think that we're okay with God. <laughs> this isn't about helping somebody overseas. This is about helping somebody that's two miles from this church. And it has been, what this documentary does that's so extraordinary is this. It says the reason why there's a Watts and the reason why it became survival of the fittest is because at one point in time, right after the war, there was enormous prosperity in the whole L.A. basin. Every ethnicity and blessings across all of them. And what happened was, is that people didn't want to live next to black people, and so they redlined. That is Watts and Crips, that's Bloods and Crips, but that marking right there, if you take the red lines, it's a little larger than red lines, but that's the red line right there. They did, it's literally called redlining. It was a banking practice. And what it said was, is if you want to buy a house in a white neighborhood, you can't. We will not give you the money. And in the beginning, it wasn't a problem because the black community had money and the white community had money because of all these jobs from the manufacturing. But then what happened was, is when the jobs went away, when all the big companies moved out, then everybody was, was, was in trouble and the whites were a lot easier, could find a job a lot easier. And so all of a sudden, in this black community, which is now essentially in this very densely populated area, all of a sudden, you start getting an epidemic of fatherlessness because the fathers are not being able to work and provide for their family. And so they're getting into drugs or they're disappearing or whatever else. And then the violence starts, and now they're being killed. Pete Carroll, well, I'll get to it in a second. But I'm just telling you. What it's pointing out was is that the reason why there is a Watts is because of the sin of redlining, the sin of racism. And the reason is people got trapped into these places, and then it did become truly the survival of the fittest. And here's what we do. This is the thing that God's captured my heart about. What we do is, is that we, we have a superficial, ill-informed understanding of what's taking place that allows us that we can do, that allows us to stay distant from it and not feel like we can make any difference and that we don't even have to try. And then we have political opportunists that come along, a black and white, who will make hay with the situation for their own aggrandizement. And what's happened is it's turned into the kind of thing. You realize 
15,000 people. This is much, much, much more than ISIS has killed outside of the Middle East. We're so worried about terrorism and it getting into New York and a bomb last night and so on, and we ought to be worried about that. I'm not saying that's not a concern, but what I am saying is there's a larger problem happening right in the heart of every major city in this country, and there's nobody that's actually doing anything about it. And God has captured me. Because I, I, I posted this, and, and understand, a Facebook post is not action, okay? You know, putting a, putting a flag through your Facebook thing is not action. But it's not bad either. It just needs to be followed by actual action. And, and what I did was I just said, this is a commercial. This guy down here is an NRA guy, and he's a black guy. And what he says is basically this in a commercial. It's real simple. He says, look, here's what the problem is. He says... People from outside the community say the problem is guns. What I'm telling you is the problem is so much cheaper than guns, it's ridiculous. And if you let those same problems be in the communities of the people who are affluent and saying that the problem is guns, they would discover that the problem isn't guns, the problem is hopelessness and abandonment and all of these other issues, and then they would start dealing with the real issue because they wouldn't want them to shoot them. And so, you know, I'm, I've, I've said it already, love you, I'm not NRA, I think they go too far, whatever, okay, you, no, I'm not, this isn't that, but for me, the whole gun control argument's a red herring, this guy nails the real problem, gun violence is the sneeze, systemic poverty that robs people of hope, opportunity, and the most basic human dignity is the disease. What black people in inner cities experience is the greatest sin in America today, and can I say, there would be some pretty hefty challengers for it the sexual revolution as I've just talked about and so on. But can I tell you, I really do believe this and I don't think it would be on the radar of most people as being a sin. And I don't mean the sin is the black people in there fighting each other. I mean the sin is, is that we're not doing anything about it. Not really. That's the sin. But we just continue to push it out of sight. Ignorance and political opportunism pile up empty words when what is needed are substantive deeds. We are our brother's keepers. We must raise to this challenge. When we do, God will join us and make a real difference. Or we can just continue to give it little more than an uninformed or ill-informed brush off. I personally, and I am doing this, am going to spend some time in repentance. This is part of that. And then I'm going to seek him as to what to do. And then by his grace and power, I'm going to do whatever he leads me, saying, here, O my Lord, send me. I hope some people join me in this. If you, if you feel like it, don't do it because of the emotionalism of this moment. But if you feel like this, this is a problem, if God captures your heart with it too, you email me and we're going to get together and start praying and start seeking him and so on. And I'll tell you in a second why prayer is not enough, but it's always the right place to start. It's always the right place to start, right? But you guys do know, you do realize that Pete Carroll is a huge thing in this. You know, he's going down to L.A. to play the Rams in L.A. where he used to coach USC. And he tells the story now differently than what's true. And this is to his credit. He tells the story as if the first time he heard about it was when he heard about after a week of shootings, 11 people dying, that he called people together to figure out what to do and then started going into communities. That's not actually true. What's true, because I read it in an article back in the day, what's, what happened was Pete Carroll got it on his heart. Here he is drafting all these, or you know, recruiting all these black students and so on. And you, you do know where, the, where USC sits is on the very edge of Watts. So, I mean, literally, when you drive out of the Coliseum, there's one road that you get to drive on, and if you take a left, you're in trouble. It's no joke, okay? I mean, it's very serious, and people do get hurt. And so the bottom line is, is he said, there's a problem here, and I don't understand what it is, and he started going in privately. He didn't tell anybody he was doing it. He didn't do anything, and just, just on his own. Now, you can check me on this, and if I'm wrong about this, tell me. I'd like to get the story right, but I'm telling you, I read this in an article years ago, before there was a better L.A., which is the ministry that now is there because of this. But what he was doing was just going in all by himself. He wasn't telling anybody because he's Pete Carroll. What happens when he starts telling people what's going on? Media circus, right? It becomes a big thing. He just went in to hear what was going on in people's lives. There's a clip, I, I, if I had more time and all that, I would have, it was, but his press conference last week after the game, he started talking about a better L.A. and going back to L.A. and what it means to him. And what he just basically said was, he said, I just listened and I listened and I listened and then I began to hear what I was supposed to be hearing. I started to hear a tone. 
And the bottom line was, he said, every one of these kids that I was talking to, what they honestly believed in their life was is that they were either going to die or go to prison. That was their future. And then it did get out. And then he called together people. And it became what's called A Better LA, which is this website right here. And, and, and Pete is dearly loved in LA because this ministry makes an enormous... I call it a ministry. It's, I don't know if he would appreciate that term. I don't, anyway, but the bottom line is, is it is, it's a bunch of people, a bunch of money, and a bunch of resources, but here's, at one point he said, he said, there's all kinds of people that will go in and drop off stuff and then leave. He said, what we're about is going in there and living. We're about going in there and being, so that we're with people. Now, this is my cause. I hope it's everybody's cause. The only reason that I bring this up is is because what I'm trying to say is, is how do you do what you don't want to do? I think we have to get a different understanding in our hearts. We have to let the Lord start to impregnate our minds with a new spirit. Because the point, like we said all along, last week and this week, is you don't get it. We don't get it. Here's what he wants us to get. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food or drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can, you, can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So seek the kingdom of God above everything else and live righteously, which means to live right standing with him, standing right with him. And he'll give you everything you need don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. I want us to start doing what we don't really want to do. Because I can tell you, I don't really want to do what I just told you my God's captured my heart on. But here's what I am doing. I'm praying, and I'm letting God start to impregnate my heart with, with a hope, an expectation, a joy, like we talked about. I'm starting to let him impregnate me with it, the possibilities of what could happen. And I have worked in ghettos a lot. And I'm no, I, I know what goes on there, and I know how dangerous it is, and I know how stupid it is to walk in there naively. Pete Carroll, in his little interview, said, he said at the very beginning, he said, I walked in there like I was Richie Cunningham, <laughs> which means just clueless. <laughs> but the point was is that he walked in there. So I'm going to have us do something now, and Will's going to play a little something and we're just going to take a minute. It's only going to be a, a minute of prayer here. We take communion and go. I want you to pray, will I actually do whatever he asks me to do no matter what? Will I actually do what he asks me to do no matter what? And then what's my sacrificial first step? I want you to think about something. Fasting and prayer. Here's the reason why those two go together so beautifully. When you're fasting, you get hungry. When you get hungry, you have a hunger pang. When you have a hunger pang and you're fasting and praying, you don't satisfy the pang by getting up and getting something to eat. You pray. The hunger pang reminds you to pray. Reminds you to bring to him what the thing is that you're fasting and praying about. Can I say something? I've talked about doing what you don't want to do by incentivizing yourself with things like Pop-Tarts. This is the opposite of what I'm saying right now. I really want you to come away from this moment right now with some idea of something that you might do that is something you do not want to do, but that you're going to do it as an action. Not to complete in the flesh what was begun in the spirit, but to put yourself in a situation to where you have to call out to God. Because you've put yourself in a situation You've put yourself in a situation where you have to be like Jesus was when he was going through the thing he was called to do. 
He prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. I don't want us to pray from the comfort of our couches. I want us to pray for pray. I want us to put our feet and our bodies in a place, an action where we cry out the more. Because you got to. We good? Take just a minute, do this, would you? Pray. Okay, you can write it down, put it on your phone, do whatever you want to do, but pray. people have got a sense of something that the Lord is asking them to do, something they don't want to do. Raise your hand. I want you to know we're going to track this. I don't mean we're going to keep account. We don't do that kind of thing. But we're going to be asking you to do these things and report back to us, and I'm going to be asking for things from you. Lord, Take that cup that's in front of you, okay? Remember, there's two cups, and the bottom cup is the bread. 